Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at Long Now. I'm joining you today from the Interval in San Francisco, and our speaker today, Roman Kuznarek, will be joining us live from London, where he'll also stay on to do questions afterwards. Roman is one of the research fellows here at the Long Now Foundation, and he's been writing about issues of long-term thinking for many years. His newest book, The Good Ancestor, is possibly one of the most Long Now aligned books since Stuart Brand wrote Clock of the Long Now. Today, he's coalesced several of the principles of that book into kind of practical ways of thinking and doing long-term thinking, and he's gonna share several of those with us today. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. A few years ago, I was sitting in a log cabin in the Austrian Alps, reading a book that set my mind on fire. And this is the book, The Salt Summaries, Seminars on Long-Term Thinking, published by the Long Now Foundation. In fact, this book was so good that I read it twice. And it contains these incredibly pithy summaries of the Long Now seminars going back to the year 2003 with extraordinary insights from thinkers ranging from geologists and astronomers to environmental historians. And reading this book made me understand that long-term thinking is of extraordinary importance for the future of human civilization. But while reading it, I also recognized something else, which is that in society at large, we are facing a conceptual emergency of long-term thinking. You can pick up a newspaper and see all sorts of people talking about the problem of short-termism and the need for long-term thinking, ranging from medical doctors and politicians to tech CEOs and designers. But there's very little clear discussion about what long-term thinking really means, whether there are different kinds of long-term thinking, whether it's always good for us, how to make it a social norm, whether you can get better at it, and that's exactly what I decided to explore in my book, The Good Ancestor, which tries to create a mental framework for thinking about long-term thinking. And it comes out with these six different ways that we can think long-term, six different ways to become a good ancestor. And I wanna share some of those with you today. But before doing that, I wanna just pinpoint exactly why long-term thinking matters. It's clear that we live in an age of pathological short-termism. Our politicians can barely see past the next election or even the latest tweet. Businesses can't see past the next quarterly report. Markets spike then crash in speculative bubbles. Nations sit around international conference tables focused on their near-term interests while the planet burns and species disappear. And as individuals, we're constantly answering the latest text and clicking the buy now button. This is the age of the tyranny of the now. And it's obvious, I think, that 
We need long-term thinking to deal with this tyranny of the now. We need it to do long-term planning in public health care, to get ready for the next pandemic that might be on the horizon. We need it to tackle racial injustice that gets passed on from generation to generation, embedded in criminal justice systems and cultural institutions more broadly. We need it to prepare us for technological risks, such as the risks from AI-controlled lethal autonomous weapons. And of course, we need long-term thinking to help us confront the challenge of the climate crisis, biodiversity loss, soil degradation, our addiction to fossil fuels. And there's a kind of paradox here, which is that the need for long-term thinking is incredibly urgent. We need it right here, right now. And the way I think about this is that I believe that humankind has colonized the future. We treat the future like a distant colonial outpost where we can freely dump ecological degradation and technological risk as if there was nobody there. And it's a bit like the way when Britain colonized Australia in the 18th and 19th century, they drew on a legal doctrine now known as terra nullius, nobody's land. They treated the continent as if there were no indigenous people. Of course, they were. And I think today what we've also got alongside terra nullius is tempus nullius. The future is seen as nobody's time, an uninhabited territory that is ours for the taking. And the tragedy is that tomorrow's generations aren't here to challenge this pillaging of their inheritance. They can't leap in front of the king's horse like a suffragette, or stage a sit-in like a civil rights activist, or go on a salt march to defy their colonial oppressors like Mahatma Gandhi. They're granted no political rights or representation. They have no influence at the marketplace. The great silent majority of future generations is rendered powerless. But it can be very difficult to grasp the scale of this injustice. So look at it this way. There are 7.7 billion people alive today. Now, over the past 50,000 years, an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died. But both of these are far outweighed by the nearly 7 trillion people who will be born over the next 50,000 years, assuming current birth rates stabilize. So there in that giant orange circle are all your grandchildren, and their grandchildren, and the friends and communities on whom they'll depend. And I think the question that really matters is, how are those future generations going to judge us for what we did or didn't do when we had the chance? And somebody who really thought about this problem was the immunologist Jonas Salk, who together with his team in 1955 developed the first polio vaccine. Later in life, he said, there's one question that really matters, and it's this. Are we being good ancestors? In other words, how are we going to be remembered by future generations? And Salk believed that if we were going to tackle the great problems of the century, such as the nuclear threat or our destruction of the living world, then we would need to expand our time horizons. And instead of thinking on a scale of seconds, minutes and hours, we need to think on a scale of decades, centuries and millennia. And in many ways, I have good news, which is that a global movement of time rebels has started to emerge absolutely committed to this kind of long-term thinking and intergenerational justice. And we see their work in lots of different areas. In the scientific world, for example, there's the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, 
which is collecting millions of seeds in an indestructible rock bunker in the Arctic Circle that's designed to last a thousand years and preserve the planet's plant biodiversity. Or there are iconic pro projects like the Long Now Foundation's 10,000 year clock, which is a slow time clock being built as we speak in the Texas desert, which is going to stay accurate for 10,000 years and become almost a secular altarpiece for a long-term thinking civilization, helping us take responsibility for the generations to come and for the planet itself. But there's a question here really, which is how do we actually get better at long-term thinking? And are we even actually capable of it? Well, I believe that in order to become a better ancestor and long-term thinker, we need to begin on a journey which starts in the human mind, in fact, in the human brain. We know that there is a constant struggle going on in our minds between the drivers of short-termism and long-termism. We experience it all the time. Do we party today or save for our pensions for tomorrow? Do we upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? And in fact, these two different sides of short-term and long-term thinking brain and dilemma is actually mirrored in two different parts of the brain itself. The short-term part of the brain is this. I call it the marshmallow brain. It's our neural wiring that we share with rats going back nearly 80 million years. And this is the part of our brain that focuses on instant rewards and short-term gratification. But the marshmallow brain, of course, is named after the famous marshmallow test, a psychology test from the 1960s, where a marshmallow was placed in front of children, and if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, then they were re rewarded with a second marshmallow. And of course, it turned out that the majority of kids couldn't resist and snatched the snack and gobbled it up. But the marshmallow brain is only part of the story of who we are, because we have another part of our brains, and here it is. It's the acorn brain. The acorn brain is the part that focuses on long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. It's about planting seeds in the ground, projects and ideals and policies that may not come to fruition and mature for years or even decades. And we've all got one. It lives here in the frontal lobe above the eyes, particularly in a part called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's a new part of the brain. It's only a couple of million years old, but it's better developed in humans than most other animals. So a chimpanzee, for example, plans for the future. Um, they might get a stick uh, off a tree and strip off the leaves to turn it into a tool to poke into a termite hole. But they will never make a dozen of these tools and set them aside for next week. But that is precisely what a human being will do. We are long-term planners extraordinaire. We plan for our children's educations and save for them. We make plans of song lists for our own funerals. It's the acorn brain in action. It's the acorn brain which helped us build the Great Wall of China and voyaged into space. So what we need to do is learn to switch on our acorn brains so it can win this struggle going on with the marshmallow brain. That's the beginning of becoming a long-term thinker, to recognize that by nature we have this acorn brain built into us. The question it really is, how are we going to switch it on? And I think to do that, we need to recognize that in society at large, there is what I think of as a tug of war for time going on between six drivers of short-termism and six ways to think long-term. 
The six drivers of short-termism are dragging us over the edge of civilizational breakdown. The six ways to think long-term are taking us towards a long-term future for people and planet. And we need to draw on the six ways to think long, this cognitive toolkit for long-term thinking that I mentioned before, in order to really switch on our acorn brain and become better ancestors. Now, if you look at the six drivers of short-termism, some of them are quite familiar, like digital distraction or political presentism, you know, the short-term electoral cycles. Some of them are deeper, such as the tyranny of the clock, because the invention of the clock in the medieval period is a key moment in shortening our time horizons. Time started being measured and sped up. It's been going on for 500 years. By 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, they had second hands and the clock became the key instrument of the industrial revolution, keeping those assembly lines moving faster and faster. Today, of course, we've got nanosecond speed share trading going on, which has brought the future closer and closer to the present. But each of those drivers of six short-termism is matched by a form of long-term thinking. And now what I'd love to do is talk about each of these different ways to think long-term, because I think we need all of them. We need to cultivate all of them to become better ancestors. So the first kind is the idea of deep time humility. This is to recognize that humankind that has only been around for a couple of hundred thousand years is just an eye blink in the cosmic story. In fact, deep time is quite a new idea. It only really emerged in the late 18th century when geologists started discovering the evidence that the Earth was far older than the 6,000 years that the Bible was telling Western culture, but was in fact hundreds of thousands, millions, maybe billions of years old, and that we were just a tiny moment in this long history of the planet and the universe itself. But it can be quite difficult to really grasp that huge temporal scale. And the writer John McPhee, who invented the term deep time, came up with a beautiful metaphor to try and help us grasp its meaning. He said, consider the Earth's history as the old measure of the English yard, the distance from the king's nose to the tip of his outstretched hand. One stroke of a nail file on his middle finger erases human history. That's short. We've only been around for that very eye blink. But let's remember too that deep time doesn't just go far into the past, it goes long into the future. In six billion years, any creatures that will be around to see our sun die will be as different from us as we are from the first single-celled bacteria. So this is what this humility of deep time is all about, recognizing there's so much time before us, so much time to come. And who are we to break the great chain of life with our ecological destruction and dangerous technologies? What kind of arrogance is that? That's what I get out of deep time. And it helps me think to myself, okay, let me try and get in touch with that longer sense of time, that ecological choreography of the planet, the long cycles that we've lost touch with. I'm not saying this is easy, but we can make the effort. You know, I was recently on summer vacation with my children and we went to a beach on the south coast of England and in our hands we held belemites, a fossil squid-like creature that was 195 million years old. 
No human being had ever set its eyes on this fossil that we'd hunted hours to find. Um, but that gave us a sense of the wonder of deep time. Or you can go and visit your local ancient tree, probably within some miles or a short bicycle ride from where you live. You, there might be a tree that's over a thousand years old. Maybe it's a Californian bristlecone pine, which is 4,000 years old. Not far from me, there's a yew tree, which is maybe 1,200 years old. And you can sit underneath it and follow the advice of the Vietnamese monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, who said, don't just do something, sit there. In other words, don't take a selfie of yourself, but try and absorb that sense of deep time. Now, a second form of long-term thinking is what's known as cathedral thinking. This is the idea of embarking on projects with very long time horizons, decades and centuries ahead, even beyond the scale of our own lifetimes themselves. And of course, the idea of cathedral thinking relates to medieval cathedral builders who started building their religious edifices, knowing they'd never necessarily be finished within their own lifetimes. And many people say, well, these are just you know, rare occasions of medieval European cathedral. Humans don't really have this capacity for long-term thinking. Well, in fact, if you look over the last 5,000 years of human history, there is ample evidence of our capacity to embark on these cathedral thinking projects. There you can see 45 different kinds of cathedral thinking that I've gathered that appear in my book, The Good Ancestor. Religious buildings, infrastructure, urban design, scientific endeavors. And I'd like to say something about just a few of them. You can see there an image of Almminster, a Lutheran church in southwest Germany. This is a classic example of cathedral thinking. In 1377, the good citizens of Alm decided they wanted to have their own church. They'd finance it themselves. And well, it wasn't finished for more than 500 years until 1890, probably the world's longest crowdfunding project. But they embarked on it anyway, knowing they'd never see it finished within their time. Social movements, too, are engaged in cathedral thinking. The first suffragette organization emerged in Manchester in 1867. They didn't achieve their aims of votes for women for more than half a century. And that's typically the case with major social movements in issues like civil rights or indigenous rights. These struggles go on for decades and many of them are still ongoing. But this is all a kind of cathedral thinking in the realm of social change. And then you can also see there a photograph from Victorian London. These are the great sewers of London, which were built following the Great Stink of 1858. In the decades leading up to then, raw sewage was being dumped in the Thames River. Tens of thousands of people would die each year from diseases such as cholera. But in the hot summer of 1858, the stench from the Thames was so bad that it even wafted into the Houses of Parliament right on its bank. And members of Parliament couldn't stand it. In fact, they had to put masks over their faces. And this finally prompted them to pass the legislation to build London's first public sewage system. It was masterminded by Sir Joseph Bazalgette, the chief engineer. He worked with 22,000 workers, 318 million bricks. And over 19 years, they built a sewer system twice as big as it needed to be at the time. And that's why it is still in use today. That was exemplary cathedral thinking. Now, these kinds of examples are incredibly inspiring. But... Cathedral thinking is not always good for us. It can be directed to very narrow and self-serving ends and can, can be incredibly destructive. Just think that Hitler wanted to have an a thousand year Reich. 
That was a kind of cathedral thinking. The political regime in North Korea wants to pass on power from generation to generation, preserving its privileges through the ages. That's cathedral thinking. Just think how much concrete has been poured by humankind. If you put together all the concrete that has been poured by our species, it would create a spherical coffin covering the whole earth, even all of the oceans, two millimeters thick. And we know that concrete is responsible for about 8% of the world's carbon emissions. And then think of cathedral thinking in the corporate world too. A former head of Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. Well, I'm not an advocate of that kind of cathedral thinking. And that's why we need to join the long horizons of cathedral thinking with something else, which is a third approach to being a good ancestor, which is the idea of intergenerational justice, which is caring about the welfare and the interests of the generations to come. Now, Groucho Marx allegedly said, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? And I think a lot of us intuitively feel that. I've got a lot, enough problems in my life right here, right now, to start thinking about those future generations, decades, even centuries ahead. Why should I do that? Well, I think if you think back to that big orange circle, all those billions upon billions of people will be born even in the next couple of centuries alone, we have a moral obligation towards them because our actions affect their lives probably more than at any moment in history. So we can have that thought with our minds, but I think we can also develop an impetus for intergenerational justice by drawing on indigenous cultures. For example, the Native American idea of seventh generation decision-making practiced in many communities, Iroquois communities, Lakota communities. A well-known chief in the Iroquois Confederacy, Chief Oren Lyons once said, we are looking ahead as is one of the first mandates given us as chiefs to make sure every decision that we make relates to the welfare and well-being of the seventh generation to come. And that is the basis by which we make decisions in council. Will this be to the benefit of the seventh generation? And this kind of idea, which is a form of ecological stewardship, is expressed around the world. In the Moluccas Islands in Indonesia, village councils also do seventh generation decision making. Or in Aotearoa in New Zealand, Maori communities have a different concept, which is called Whakapapa, which is their idea of lineage, the idea that we're part of a great chain of life stretching long into the past and far into the future. And the light happens to be shining here and now, and we need to shine it more broadly when we're making our decisions and thinking about our impacts on the generations to come. But what really excites me is that ideas such as seventh generation thinking, which might seem very distant from modern urban life, are actually finding their place in radical change around intergenerational justice. In Japan, for example, there is an extraordinary movement called Future Design. And it is directly inspired by the Native American ideal of seventh generation decision making. What happens in future design is that local residents are invited to draw up and discuss plans for the towns and cities where they live. But they're divided into two groups. Half of them are told that they're residents from the present day. The other half are given these almost ceremonial robes to wear and told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. Well, it turns out the residents from 2060 systematically advocate far more transformative city plans from healthcare investment to climate change action. 
And this future design movement is spreading from small towns like Yahaba to major cities like Kyoto, and the method is even being used in Japan's Ministry of Finance. So I would like to see future design spreading to towns and progressive cities and communities worldwide to revitalize democratic decision-making and extend their vision far beyond the now. But the idea of intergenerational justice is also finding its place in legal struggles. In the US, there is an extraordinary organization called Our Children's Trust, a public interest law firm, which has filed a landmark case on behalf of 21 young people campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. This is an enormous shift in the history of human rights, one of the most important since the French Revolution, rights for future people. Now, they are engaged in a David versus Goliath struggle at both the federal and state level, but have already inspired landmark legal cases worldwide from Colombia and Uganda to the Netherlands as well. And their actions exist alongside the movement to grant legal personhood to nature. So, for example, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Wanganui River, sacred to local Maori people, has been given legal personhood, just like corporations have had legal personhood since the late 19th century. So I think it's really important that we get behind these movements for intergenerational justice in the legal sphere, in the political sphere. In Wales, they have a future generations commissioner. Well, why don't more countries have future generations commissioners? This is part of the journey to a long now civilization. Now, a fourth approach to long-term thinking is what I think of as developing a legacy mindset. Just like intergenerational justice, a legacy mindset helps give direction to our long-term thinking and cathedral thinking. Now, the idea of a legacy is very important because we are the inheritors of legacies too. Inheritors of extraordinary positive legacies from the past, the gift of the agricultural revolution or medical discoveries we still benefit from or the cities we still live in. But we are also the inheritors of destructive legacies, legacies of slavery and colonialism and racism creating deep inequities that must now be repaired. Legacies of economies that are structurally addicted to endless growth and fossil fuels that must now be transformed. So we need to think very hard about what kind of legacies we want to leave for future generations. And the good news is that human beings die. Now, why is that good news? Well, basically, by the time we reach midlife, we start thinking about how we're going to be remembered when we are gone. Our mortality makes us jump our minds into the distant future. But the thing is, we tend to express our legacies in very different ways. Some people want to leave a egocentric form of legacy, so they're remembered for their great glorious deeds. For example, a Russian oligarch might want to have a football stadium or an art gallery wing named after them. A second kind of legacy motivation is familial legacy. That's where we want to pass on something to our own children. But that is in itself is also a fairly narrow form of legacy within our own bloodline or our own personal relationships. I believe a third kind of legacy is required to be a good ancestor. And that's a universal kind of legacy where we care about the universal strangers of the future. We care about the welfare of people we will never meet. Now, it can be quite difficult to do that, particularly in our self-obsessed, egotistical, hyper-individualistic consumer culture. How do we start connecting with those generations two, three, seven generations ahead? Well, to do that, I think we need to go on a little bit of an imaginative journey. And I'd like to take you through a short thought experiment 
which was developed by a long-term thinker called Ella Saltmarsh and the Long Time Project. So just close your eyes for a moment and imagine a child in your life who you really care about. It could be a nephew or niece or one of your own children or grandchildren. Just picture their face. And now with your eyes still closed, imagine them 30 years in the future. Again, picture their face. Think about the joys they might experience or the challenges they might be facing. And now, still with your eyes closed, imagine them on their 90th birthday party and they're surrounded by family and friends and loved ones and old work colleagues. Go and have a look out the window. What kind of world is it out there? And now come back and look at their old and wrinkled face. And then you see someone come over and put a tiny baby into their arms. It's their first great grandchild. And they look into that baby's eyes and ask themselves, what will this child need to survive and thrive for the years and decades ahead? Just hold that thought for a moment. And now open your eyes again. And just think that that tiny baby could be alive well into the 22nd century. Their future isn't science fiction. It's an intimate family fact. And certainly when I do that thought experiment, I think about my 11-year-old daughter as a 90-year-old and I think about her great-grandchild. I recognize that my daughter and that great-grandchild are not alone in the world. They are part of a web of relationships, a web of people, a web of community, and a web of the living world, the air that they breathe, the water they drink. So if I care about their legacy, if I care about their future welfare, I have to care not just about their life, I have to care about all life. In other words, this kind of thought experiment is a bridge from a, a relatively narrow form of familial legacy to a much more broad universal sense of legacy of caring about those universal strangers of the future. And there's some wonderful projects which try to tap into this kind of legacy thinking. So for example, the Scottish artist Katie Patterson has started something called Future Library, a 100-year art project where every year for a century, a famous writer is donating a book which will remain completely secret and unread in the Future Library until the year 2114 when the 100 books will be printed on paper made from a thousand trees that have been planted in a forest outside Oslo. The first person to donate a book was Margaret Atwood, Elif Shafak and many other famous writers have donated since. But just think, Margaret Atwood is never going to see that book printed in her lifetime. She's never going to meet the readers. This is a legacy gift to the future. Or another kind of legacy project is the Greenbelt Movement, started in 1977 by the African activist Wangari Maathai, who's the first African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Her ambition back in the late 70s was to create a movement which replanted trees all over Kenya, restoring the natural world, but also taught agroforestry skills to women, an empowering women project. By the time she died in 2011, tens of thousands of women had been trained up in agroforestry skills. More than 40 million trees had been planted and the Greenbelt movement is still growing strong, working with women in over 4,000 communities across Africa. What an extraordinary legacy gift. And we can all ask ourselves, 
What kind of legacies do we want to leave to the generations of the future? Now, a fifth kind of long-term thinking is what I call holistic forecasting. Now, forecasting goes back to ancient Egyptian priests who would try to predict the size of the Nile flood. Would it be too big, too small, or just right? But then forecasting became very much uh, a Cold War affair uh, after the Second World War, uh, when it really started booming with topics such as scenario planning. And then it became adopted by the corporate world. But corporate forecasting these days tends to be in the realm of three, five, maybe 10 years ahead. But when I'm talking about holistic forecasting, I'm talking about centuries ahead, or at least decades ahead, and thinking about not just the fate of a company or even a single country, but the long-term forecast for human civilization itself. This is long-term thinking that it's very important that we do because we must recognize an important truth, which is that no civilization lasts forever. The Cambridge University researcher Luke Kemp did a really important study of ancient civilizations, nearly 90 of them, to find out the average age of an ancient civilization. How long do they last for? Well, he discovered that the average age for one of these civilizations, whether it was the Roman Empire or, or Carthage, the average age was 336 years, not very long. And his point, of course, was that no matter how technologically advanced or militarily strong a civilization is, it's not going to last forever. All civilizations are born, they flower, and then they die. And so too it is with our own civilization. Ours will not last forever. Let us not fall into that kind of mythological trap. We have to get ready for our own demise and work out how are we going to slow down our civilizational decline, as Jared Diamond and many others have identified in all their work? Or is it possible to jump onto a transformative pathway, a new civilizational pathway? And this takes me to my final form of long-term thinking, the idea of pursuing a transcendent goal. Now, the great astronomer Carl Sagan famously said that just as every individual needs a sacred goal to guide their life, to give it meaning and purpose, so too does every civilization and our species in itself. The human species needs, he said, a telos, which is the Greek word for a goal or objective, a lodestar to guide it that can guide, in my view, all the other forms of long-term thinking. But what should that goal be for our species? What should we be ultimately aspiring to? Well, I think if you look broadly at public culture, there are three different goals that have been identified as worthy of our long-term future. One of them I call perpetual progress. This is the idea of pursuing material improvement and endless economic growth. This has been the de facto goal, particularly of Western countries, since at least the end of the Second World War, possibly since the Enlightenment. I mean, in the last 70 years, most governments have prioritized the pursuit of constant GDP growth, whether they have been Keynesian or Marxist or neoliberal. But we now know that even though the pursuit of material progress and, and economic growth has brought us enormous benefits over the past couple of hundred years, particularly since the Industrial Revolution, it has come at a cost that is no longer supportable. That cost is what's known as the Great Acceleration. All those upswinging curves of carbon dioxide emissions, ocean acidification, deforestation, which has pushed us over 
planetary boundaries into an unstable Earth system, shifting us from the period called the Holocene, where temperatures were stable and agricultural civilization developed, into the new geological period of the Anthropocene. You know, when my kids were little, they learned the problem of progress, that you can't keep blowing up a balloon forever, because at some point it's going to pop. So let's not think that we can keep growing at 2% or 3% or whatever we want year upon year. Nothing in nature grows forever, whether it's an oak forest or your children's feet. Everything follows an S-curve and eventually levels off and dies off. So I think the idea of perpetual progress is uh, a mythology we need to challenge. And together with its ideas such as green growth or sustainable growth. There is no evidence that we can decarbonize and dematerialize growing economies at anything like the pace and scale required to bring us within safe planetary boundaries, particularly of CO2 emissions, fast enough. You know, that is just a myth. So we need to look at something else. Well, a second possible goal for humankind, a transcendent goal, is the idea of what I think of as techno-liberation. The idea that technology can solve our problems. And the prime contender here is the idea that we can escape to other worlds. In fact, if we're going to survive as a species for the long term, as Carl Sagan really said, we needed to people other worlds. That's the only way to spread the risk in case we destroy this planet. And the ultimate aim, at least for the moment, is let's get to Mars. Let's colonize Mars. Now, I'm here a follower of people like the cosmologist Martin Rees, who believes that colonizing Mars should not be the ultimate aim of the human species. It's partly because it's so difficult. 30 million miles away, temperatures minus 100 degrees, nowhere as clement on Mars as the bottom of Antarctica or the top of Everest. And even if we could maybe terraform Mars, and there's no definite evidence that we can do it, it might take hundreds, maybe thousands of years. It's not a solution to our urgent problems that we face. But the other problem, as Martin Rees pointed out, is that the more we focus on colonizing Mars and other planets as our ultimate species aim, the less we're going to look after planet Earth. The collateral damage will be too high. We need to look after base camp Earth. As any mountaineer knows, you don't climb a risky peak until you make sure your base camp is in order. And at the moment, we haven't learned to live within the boundaries of base camp Earth. So I don't think now is yet the time to start putting all our sights on going to Mars or discovering other planetary homes. And that's why I believe the third and primary goal for humankind should be what I think of as one planet thriving. That's the idea of meeting the needs of all current and future people within the means of a flourishing planet. This is the basic idea of ecological economics, which has been around since Herman Daly's writings of the 1970s, at least. And that's the idea that, you know, don't use resources faster than they can be naturally regenerated and don't create wastes faster than they can be naturally absorbed by oceans and other carbon sinks. It's not about endless growth. It's about thriving in balance. That is really, I believe, the only way we should be thinking when it comes to our priorities for our species as a whole, to live within the means of one planet. And someone who expressed this absolutely beautifully was the biomimicry designer and thinker Janine Benyas. Let me read to you something that she said. She wrote, The answers we seek, the secrets to a sustainable world are literally all around us. If we choose to truly mimic life's genius, 
the future I see would be beauty and abundance and certainly fewer regrets. In the natural world, the definition of success is the continuity of life. You keep yourself alive and you keep your offspring alive. That's success. But it's not the offspring in this generation. Success is keeping your offspring alive for 10,000 generations and more. That presents a conundrum because you're not going to be there to take care of your offspring 10,000 generations from now. So what organisms have learned to do is to take care of the place that's going to take care of their offspring. Life has learned to create conditions conducive to life. That's really the magic heart of it. And that's also the design brief for us right now. We have to learn how to do that. Now, those words of Janine Benyas, I think, are perhaps the most profound words I've ever seen about long-term thinking because they tell us the secret of long-term thinking in a way, which is that it's not just about time. It's about place. It's about caring for the place that will take care of our offspring, the one and only planet we know that sustains life, planet Earth, that is living within the ecological boundaries of the place in which we are embedded. It's about not fouling the nest, which of course is what humans have been doing with devastating effects at an ever-increasing pace and scale over the last century. But how, how do we take this idea of one planet thriving and put it into practice? Well, for that, I believe we need new economic models. We need to shift into a post-growth mindset, get off our addiction to endless growth. And I think one of the most important models that we could start thinking about is what's known as the donut, the donut of social and planetary boundaries developed by the British economist, Kate Rayworth. And the way the donut works is this, there's two rings. There is a social foundation, things like water, food, basic healthcare. And the aim we should be prioritizing is bringing people above that basic social foundation. But we need to do it without pushing our, ourselves beyond the ecological ceiling. That's the outer ring of the donut. And the ecological ceiling is made up of the nine planetary boundaries, they're called, which have been developed by Earth system scientists like Johan Rockström and Will Stefan. Things like climate change and ocean acidification, caring for our soils, chemical pollution. So this model is not about growing, growing, growing. It's about thriving in balance. It's about getting into the safe and just space for humanity, that sweet spot, that light green area there. This is what I believe the goal for governments today should be to ensure our long-term future. But can we actually live within the donut? Well, let's have a look at where we are today. On a global level, this is our selfie and what a devastating one it is. There's a shortfall on all of the social foundations on a global level, people not able to meet their basic food or health and other requirements. That's what those little red segments are. And when it comes to the ecological ceiling, we're going over at least four planetary boundaries, the ones for which we have good data already. And this donut model has also been scaled down from the global level to the national level. It's being used in cities such as Amsterdam. It's being used by progressive companies. So I believe that this is the kind of economic thinking we absolutely need for a long-term future. So there are six different ways to think long-term, six different forms of approach to being a good ancestor, ways of switching on our acorn brain. But there's a lingering issue here because a lot of people say to me, they say, you know, what's all this long-term thinking all about? You know, it's so difficult and governments are so hopeless why don't we just have benign dictators come along and sort it all out for us? What we really need, many people say, are enlightened despots. And there is a growing movement of people 
believing this on both the left and right, the green and the non-green. Well, that's an interesting idea to think about, isn't it? Is it actually true that authoritarian governments are better at delivering on long-term public policy goals? And one might intuitively think, yes, or just look at China. Aren't they great at long-term green infrastructure investment? Or look at Singapore. Aren't they fantastic at their long-term investment in housing and public health care? So I thought about this and thought, well, let's look at the evidence. And in my book, The Good Ancestor, I actually look empirically at whether dictatorships perform better than democracies when it comes to long-term thinking. And the way it's done in the book is that I draw on a new index of intergenerational solidarity developed by a statistician called Jamie McQuilkin. This is, I think, the best long-term index in the world. And it has 10 different indicators from three different areas which are put together. So there are environmental indicators such as the amount of renewable energy in the system. There are indicators of social matters such as uh, investment in healthcare, and then there are, there are economic indicators such as inequality. They're put together into a single number, and then 122 countries are ranked. And in the rankings, you can see that the top performing countries in the world are places like Iceland and Sweden, but also many non-wealthy countries such as Nepal or Sri Lanka. And of course, you can't see China there. China's down at number 25. The UK is 45. The United States is number 62. So there's a lot of variability in terms of long-term policy performance. But then there's the question of, well, how do these perform when it comes to democracy and dictatorship? Well, have a look at this. This scatter plot shows the intergenerational solidarity index on the bottom axis. And on the y-axis going upwards is a measure of democracy called the VDEM liberal democracy measure. And what you see there is that the little dots of countries cluster in the top right and the bottom left. That means the more democratic you are, the more long-term your public policy is going to be. And the less democratic you are, the less long-term your public policy is going to be. In fact, of the top 25 countries on the intergenerational solidarity index, 21 of them are democracies. Of the 25 bottom scoring countries, on the Intergenerational Solidarity Index, 21 of them are autocracies. And I think this really puts an end, in a way, to that benign dictatorship argument. There is no systematic empirical evidence that autocracies outperform democracies when it comes to long-term public policy. In fact, quite the opposite. And this is not saying that democracies can rest easy. They all need to deepen their democracy and inject more long-term thinking into their decision-making. But certainly the idea that a dictatorship is going to solve all our problems is something that we have to, I think, leave to the dustbin of history. So I really want to end by recognizing that we are at a moment of global crisis. There's the crisis of the pandemic, there's the ecological crisis, and no doubt there are financial crises coming our way too in the months and maybe years ahead. And historically, I think we have to recognize too that crises are moments for change and opportunity. Milton Friedman, the economist, famously said, only a crisis, real or perceived, produces real change. I think that's a pretty good historical rule of thumb. Go back to the end of the Second World War. Out of the crisis of the war emerged extraordinary long-term institutions. The World Health Organization, the National Health Service in Britain, the European Union. And I believe that here we are at this moment of crisis in the early 21st century. And we have the opportunity to become long-term thinkers, to draw on those six different ways to switch on our ACORN brains. And I believe that if we rise to this challenge, we truly can become the good ancestors that future generations deserve. Thank you very much. 
Thank you so much, Roman. Um, that was fantastic. Welcome. <laughs> it's good to see you. Uh, yeah, and I just wanted to say, um, actually, the Good Ancestor, which was supposed to be, uh, originally was going to be out right before this talk aired, uh, but uh, is going to be out on November 3rd here in the United States, um, holding the UK version now. Um, so November 3rd is election day, and I, you touched on politics there at the end, and, and it might be a good place for us to start. So anyway, thank you, and welcome uh, to us from London. Um, by the way, we're doing this talk earlier than we would normally do it because uh, we have uh, Roman here live from eight hours ahead in time. So welcome. Thank you very much for doing that, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to do the 2 a.m. version of your of your talk. Uh, and I wanted to start a little bit with the politics. I mean, I think, um, you know, you touched on some of the kind of bad forms of, of long term thinking. And I think we've uh, we've seen some of that in, in politics here in the United States with things like the way uh, redistricting has been the slow burn of kind of changing uh, uh, congressional districts to uh, not to be necessarily fair, but to be uh, more tilted in, in one way or another. And and the politics is just an area that is kind of rife with this. Um, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think that when it comes to long-term thinking, there hasn't been enough emphasis put on how we can, in a way, inject long-termism into the DNA of democracy itself. I think one particularly finds this in the environmental movement, you know, broadly, a sort of an unwillingness to um, really think about how we shift political institutions, partly because it is so difficult to do that. And so that's why my book, I focus quite a lot actually on the politics. Um, I partly do that also because I used to be a political scientist and um, I was apparently an expert in democracy about two decades ago. And to my shame, during that time, it never once occurred to me that we disenfranchise future generations in the same way that uh, in some ways that you know women and slaves have been disenfranchised throughout history. Uh, and that's still ongoing, of course. Of course, there are differences there, but those future generations are not part of the political conversation. And, you know, there are politicians, of course, who have always been trying to manipulate the systems for their short-term gains, gerrymandering of various kinds. It still tends to have quite short-term uh, ambitions. It's about winning the next election, but sometimes it's about trying to embed uh, that manipulation in there. But where I really have faith, where I'm excited, I think, is... Um, to look at the citizen assembly movement rising around the world in countries like Ireland, in Spain, Belgium, Iceland, Canada and other places. There's been a kind of revival of participatory democracy, I think, in a way as a counter to the rise of far right populism um, and the sense that our major parties are failing us when it comes to dealing with climate change or dealing with immigration issues or whatever it happens to be. So that's why I love that example from Japan where people are wearing those lovely robes because that's a kind of grassroots revival of the ancient Greek idea of participatory democracy. And I'd like to see a lot more of that. I'd like to see Britain's House of Lords replaced by a, a house of the future made up of uh, everyday citizens. Right now, um, Chile, I, I understand, is undergoing a process of reconfiguring their constitution. I'd love to see it full of this kind of citizen assembly movements. But I think in different countries, different approaches will be needed. You know, in the US, things like our children's trust, legal battles are going to be important. In the UK, it might be more of the citizen assembly approach. 
And I think it was interesting to see the way you kind of uh, made an index of how uh, democracies actually do think longer term. But I think we we do have the cyclical problem of democracies, where you know if we have a if we have an election that's you know cycle that's four years or eight years, but we have um, policies that need to help people over generations. Um, do you have any thoughts on how to kind of you know unwind some of that cyclical nature in democracies and help help a politician think m many decades ahead? It's really difficult, of course, because politicians have their own life cycles, their ministerial careers. And, you know, I'm not saying that we ought to be getting rid of elections and having elections every 12 years or every 22 years. Um, I just think that we need to layer on top of it um, other kinds of long term thinking and forecasting institutions. And of course, long-term institutions do exist in many political forms. That's what public services are, judiciaries are, for example. They can have their own problems by locking in certain kinds of political views for uh, years and sometimes decades, as we're seeing in the US at the moment. Um, but I do believe that we need to have multiple voices, as it were. Certainly, democracies cannot rest easy, even though 21 of the top 25 scores in that intergenerational solidarity index are democracies. It doesn't mean they can just lay back every single democracy in the world could be deepening its democracy, could be lengthening uh, their their views. You know, in Finland, there's a parliamentary committee for the future, which has been around since 1993. You know, Wales has its future generations commissioner. We, so we need to bring those into our existing processes. And of course, there will always be struggles between short term uh, necessities, dealing with immediate crises and the need to deal with very long term issues. But of course, sometimes those overlap. So if you look at Wales, the future generations commissioner there, her name's Sophie Howe, she tries to focus on issues which benefit both current and future generations. Things like, you know, renewable energy, you know, changing the transport system, air pollution, all that kind of stuff helps today. It helps the citizens of tomorrow. Right. And uh, I think the one of the interesting principles I think that we've been experimenting with at long now is this idea of of kind of trusting the future uh, more than I think we often do this and and that we can, we we do need to put blind trust into future generations that they they fundamentally know more about their present than we can possibly predict about our future um, and this idea of increasing optionality and I think you kind of of making sure that they have as many choices as possible um, and you kind of touched on that a little bit but I wonder if you talk a little bit about kind of how much we trust the future or not and how much we should? That's a really fascinating question. I guess the starting point for my thinking about this is to go back to those citizen assemblies. One of the reasons I like them is because they come up with a multiplicity of different futures because you've got people from very different social backgrounds. So you're not getting the future that just uh, a corporate CEO wants, but you might be uh, a future that somebody who's living on the social margins or has experienced deep racism in their life wants. And it's really important that we envisage and envision a multiplicity of futures. I think one of the really uh, important things about Black Lives Matter, for example, is the way that it has spoken in, in many respects, the language of intergenerational justice and injustice. So there's a very important book written by Leila F. Saad called Me and White Supremacy. And um, on the first page of that book, she talks about being a good ancestor. Why? Because as I understand it, you know, her view is that, well, the, the racism and the, the colonial inheritances uh, and the slavery inheritances are being passed down from generation to generation over the long term, embedded in cultural, political, 
economic institutions, you know, throughout society. So I think that we need to, in a way, trust the citizens of the present to envisage multiple futures. There isn't just one future out there, as the futurist uh, futurists like to tell us. I think that's absolutely true. But on the other side of that, I think it's really important to point out that we are not simply living in a world of mass uncertainty. I'm often at meetings with government, for example, where there are a lot of foresight experts and the language is all about, oh, it's all so uncertain. Everything's so uncertain. We're in these times of turbulence. And that's true to a certain extent. But we also know a lot about the future. We know that we have pushed over planetary boundaries, as we saw in that donut picture there. We know about the great acceleration. We don't know exactly how much sea levels are going to rise and how fast or exactly how much temperature is going to go up by 2100. But we have a pretty good idea. And with that kind of certainty, we can kind of work for what we knew, know future generations are going to need. Ultimately, air to breathe, food to eat, water to drink. That gives us a pretty clear telos. Yeah, there's definitely some inevitabilities of, of these things. Um, so we'll, I'm going to ask a few questions uh, from our audience um, that tuned in today, and then we'll um, we'll also be bringing in Kevin Kelly and Stuart Brand uh, pretty soon. Uh, but uh, Aori Selassie uh, asks, um, how can technology be more of an enabler of the good ancestor instead of the short-term uh, soothing mechanism? Yeah, I think they're really important questions about how technology can be transformed and used to expand our time horizons, create a long now civilization. Because, of course, we do tend to think of technology, particularly our phones, as something which is drawing us into the here and the now. We are clicking, we are swiping, we are, we are scrolling. I think there's some really interesting examples in the world of um, uh, virtual and augmented reality uh, experiences. You know, I, I once founded a, a museum that's still around called the Empathy Museum. And what, one of the exhibits we have is called A Mile in My Shoes. It's a gigantic shoebox which travels around the world and you can actually go inside it. It's the world's first empathy shoe shop. You go in and you're fitted with a pair of shoes belonging to a stranger. They could belong to uh, a guy who's been in prison for 14 years or a Syrian refugee or a Brazilian sex worker. And you can literally walk a mile in their shoes while listening to an audio narrative of them talking about their own life in their own words. The problem, though, is how do you do that for future generations, right? When you cannot put on their shoes or um, have a conversation with them or look them in the eye. And that's where I think virtual reality is going to be important. Um, you know, in Stanford, there's the virtual human interactions lab where you can go and experience what it's like to witness coral bleaching over the next hundred years. Um, and that's uh, an extraordinary thing to do. And it, in a way, writes the future onto our skins by giving us a whole sensory experience. But of course, that kind of technology isn't well developed yet, or at least it's not um, spread on a scale which um, is really has the power yet to shift society on a large scale. But I'd love to see kind of new kinds of hacking inventions when it comes to technology. I'd like to see instead of a buy now button, a buy later button. So when you go to buy something online, you get a drop down menu. Yeah, you can buy now, but maybe you can buy in a week or buy in a month or buy in a year or borrow from a friend. And if you press buy in, buy in a month, well, you get an email in a month's time saying, well, do you really want that third yoga mat? If you do, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so I think there's a lot more work that can be done around uh, technology and challenging myopia. Nice. Uh, and we'll bring in uh, Stuart Brand after this. I know uh, today is, is kind of the first day you guys have actually met, uh, in at least in uh, real time. Um, and 
We have a question from uh, Deepesh Chaudhari, uh, and he asks, can you offer some examples of nudges one could use to inject long-termism into more everyday life? Yeah, the, the question of nudges is really important. You know, to be honest, I am not a great believer uh, in sort of nudge approaches, that kind of behavioral psychology stuff. I believe it's really fundamental to um, inculcate new values in society. It's about paradigm change at the deep level. That's the work of Donella Meadows, systems thinkers, Thomas Kuhn and others. But nudge thinking is important. It does have a role. So let me give an example to answer the question. So here's something absolutely fascinating about the way people write their wills in the United Kingdom. Most people in the UK, uh, on average, 6% of people will leave a charitable bequest in their will. In other words, a gift for future generations for people or planet, 6%. But if they are asked while they're writing their will, a simple question, which is this, would you like to leave a charitable bequest in your will? It goes up from 6% to 12%. And then if they happen to be asked this question, this is more or less the wording. If someone says to them, a lot of people like leaving a gift to charity in their wills. Is there an issue that you are really passionate about? Well, suddenly it jumps to 17%. In other words, these are behavioral nudges, ways of switching on, you know, that acorn brain, which I was mentioning earlier, I'll take away the marshmallow, you know, so there, there is there is a potential for nudgeonomics uh, in this realm, certainly. Great, well, we'll bring in uh, Stuart. Good evening, Stuart. Hi there, Stuart. Um, well, first of all, congratulations on the book and on this talk. I love what you're doing and, and the directions it's going. And in terms of the directions it's going, you finished the book some while ago. The book is now out in England, coming out in the US, and you're seeing response to it. You're seeing response to these talks. And so I imagine you're starting to see things that um, are taking your ideas and thought further, and that you might put some of them in an epilogue to the paperback edition that comes out in a year or so or something like that. What have you been learning since you finished the book? Yeah, that's really fascinating, actually, because when a book comes out, as you'll know from your own books, it's really hard to uh, know exactly how people are going to respond. So the first thing that really struck me was how many governments wanted to think about long-term thinking. And that they weren't only just interested in scenario planning, trying to make kind of predictions for uh, various futures that might be out there. They're concerned about how do we get people to actually care about the future, to care about those future generations, to really buy into it. So I was at a really fascinating meeting of British members of parliament recently where I was giving them a briefing on the book and we were in a way testing out different kinds of language that would work with uh, politicians and kind of metaphors and things like that. And what it turned out, or certainly what I saw, what the evidence suggested was that talking about the probability of bad things happening, asteroids hitting us or, or statistics about climate change didn't really connect with them. What really connected was talking about their children and grandchildren going very personal. So I've been really struck by um, that, that interest in government. And in fact, just next week, I'm going to a, a meeting again in the UK uh, about synthetic biology and what should be the government's long-term planning around this. And I think it's just really interesting that they're even inviting me along. And I think there's, a, there's something in the air in the EU, Canada, other countries. So that's really struck me. And then the other thing I think is, is um, business, you know, the way that 
social enterprises, even massive corporations are responding to this book. And I think they're not just responding to my book in particular, but just that importance of trying to think long term. So even, you know, I've been approached by some of the world's biggest mining companies who, to me, certainly don't seem to have a very long term vision. But even they are trying to think, how do we become regenerative? How do we lower our carbon emissions? How do we become circular? So there is really something in the air. And I think this is what the Long Now Foundation has been kind of generating over the last you know, 20 years of work, at least actually changing the public conversation. But what do you what have you been noticing about uh, the, the, the way that long term thinking is being talked about in recent months and years? Uh, just the fact that, you know, your book is out there and there are other things that you refer to are out there. It's becoming a subject. Um, in my own case, I'm pursuing the concept of maintenance as an important thing to take on. And I'll be quoting your book a lot in the chapter on civilization that will be in there. But one follow-up question. I'm curious when you're talking with the government about synthetic biology and biotech in general, and which then extends into tech in general, I can't completely predict how you're going to come out on that. You might be um, what I would regard as overly cautious, don't try things unless you know exactly what's happening. Or you might be, look, there's so much good that can be done by these technologies. Let's check out what they can do for us. What, where do you come out on that? I wish I knew. Um, I really feel uh, pulled in different directions on a lot of these things. I am by nature a technological skeptic, Um, you know, probably unlike maybe many people in this audience. And, you know, that's just where I'm coming from. So I've tried to make a huge effort to engage with technology thinkers and writers and companies. And I've visited nuclear fusion projects and all sorts of stuff like that. And I think synthetic biology, you know, is is one of those really, really interesting ones, because on the one hand, I'm moving towards the idea that we are definitely going to need synthetic foods uh, to feed 10 billion people by 2050. Um, I can hardly see that there's any way that we can uh, avoid that, um, you know, even if we were all switching, you know, to vegetarian diets um, or even vegan diets. Um, so there's that angle. But on the other hand, I can see that the uh, corporate world is trying to buy out uh, a lot of, you know, synthetic biology. And, you know, if we're talking about using it to meet basic human needs, there's a really important conversation to have with government about how to regulate uh, those industries. So, you know, I'm still sort of in a way finding my uh, way, uh, you know, on that. And I don't pretend to be an expert in, in any of these kinds of areas, but I like the fact that I'm changing my views on a lot of these things. I recently came across a really fantastic talk by the Danish architect, um, Bjarke Ingels, um, uh, actually a TED talk where he was talking about Mars colonization and pointing out that the technology required to live on Mars, like to have a non-fossil fuel based energy system or to live with very little water is exactly what we need to learn to do on Earth. So there's a kind of a confluence there. And that was sort of been challenging my thinking, too. Yeah. And we saw that with the photograph of the Earth from space. Uh, the space program was fought by every environmentalist I know, except Jacques Cousteau. Um, so, you know, sometimes you know, the, the, the uh, unexpected uh, consequences are beneficial and you can push for that. Well, and I love John Maynard Keynes who said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? 
Right. Thank you so much, Stuart. It was great to have you. Uh, yeah, and I think I, that's it's an interesting case of you know and you you point out these ideas of these transcendent goals, and in some cases those transcendent goals can inspire people to, you know, hyper develop a technology. You know, if we can decarbonize Mars, we could really decarbonize our planet. Uh, you know, it's an all CO two atmosphere basically there. So if <laughs> if we can figure out how to sink all of that, I think we'd be we'd be doing very well to terraform our own planet. Uh, very easily, so um, so I think that's that's well worth doing. And we'll bring in um, we'll bring in Kevin Kelly after this question from Shell Kappen. Um, he asks, uh, how do we create institutions that incentivize people to cooperate with investing in long term thinking versus defecting uh, to their own short term benefit? And it's kind of I guess it's an institutional question of where do, where do we get this? Where do we get these types of institutions? I think that's a really difficult uh, and interesting question. Um, I think it depends what realm that you are in, envisaging. So let's have a look at the political realm firstly. Go back to that example of Japan. Now, when people put on their, uh, their robes and imagine themselves in 2060, something really interesting happens. They are become willing to sacrifice um, for future generations. So there's a famous case in Japan as part of this movement where the citizens of a town were asked if they were willing to pay higher water rates, higher water taxes, in order to uh, repair the decrepit water infrastructure, in order to help uh, their children or grandchildren 50 years, 70 years from now. And in fact, using this future design method, literally by imagining themselves in the year 2060, they were willing to accept a 6% rise in their water taxes. It's a very small example, but I think it's really significant because it, it shows that in a way, I think those people didn't see it as a sacrifice. They saw it as an intergenerational gift, right? But they were only able to see it that way when they had gone on this imaginative time travel, become a resident of the future temporarily by, by, by dressing themselves up in effect. So I think that's one behavioral way that we can incentivize people by taking them on imaginative journeys using the extraordinary capacity of the human mind to pirouette across time scales you know to to move between thinking on a scale of seconds and minutes and hours to decades centuries and even millennia and then i think in the economic world it's uh, there are complexities there as well we've seen you know really interesting shifts of behavioral uh, structures so the company Unilever, for example, one of the world's biggest, you know, uh, food stuff consumer uh, companies. Well, when Paul Polman became uh, CEO about 10 or 11 years ago, he abolished quarterly reporting on the day that he took over. Uh, he, he famously said that, you know, that he thought that they couldn't even fire him on the first day. That's why he did it. And he <laughs> fought a battle, right? He fought a battle to make that company more sustainable. Very strict, long-term uh, goals on sustainability and sourcing around their suppliers. But he was in a struggle. Why? Because the company was owned by shareholders, right? He was subject to hostile takeover bids from Kraft Heinz uh, and others. So even though you may have your purpose may embody long-term thinking, if your ownership and finance uh, is still based on short-term incentive structures, you are always going to struggle. You know, you're always going to struggle. And that's why I'm, you know, particularly uh, impressed by companies which are trying to shift away from those models. So in Britain, the, the one of the biggest renewable energy suppliers, Good Energy, um, is 60% owned by its customers. And that, in a way, ties it to longer term sustainable principles. Or the Dutch bank Triodos, which is spreading rapidly around the world, 
Well, their shares are all held in a trust, a kind of foundation, and they have their own platform for trading their shares, and it protects the principles of long-termism and sustainability around their investments. So there's all sorts of structures we could be using. I think we're going to need to use and invent a whole load of different kinds for different realms and different countries. Nice. And we'll, uh, we'll bring in Kevin Kelly. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, Roman. Hey, I thought I agree with what Alexander says, which is I think this is probably the most long now-ish talk that we've <laughs> ever had. And it's the talk that I will point people to when I have to explain what long now thinking is about. So I think one of the things that your book and talk tries to do that's one of the most difficult things to do is to um, describe a future that we want to aim for, to have this one thriving planet in, in the future. But I have to say that when you take away this kind of perpetual growth model, it's on first appearance a future that seems stagnant, that seems to have no future in itself. It's like, well, we arrive there and then is it utopia? Is it the same? What changes? What happens over time? What is growing? And of course, growing in English is a word that has two meanings. One, we can grow in size and get fat, or we can grow up, get better. And so um, there's developmental growth, which is the kind of growth that we've been having, and then there's evolutionary growth. So we kind of want a world that keeps getting better, that grows in some dimension perpetually. So can you, is there, is there kind of a, a metric or quantity or measurement or evidence that you would say in 100 years, this shows that we've been good, we've become good ancestors. What would that, how could we prove or what evidence would we have that in a hundred years or in a thousand years, we were good ancestors. And then in a thousand years after that, we were even better ancestors. So I guess I'm interested in not just good ancestors, but better ancestors. How do we keep getting better? And what is that dimension? So sort of in response to the first part, I think when I'm talking about one planet thriving, this is not a stagnant state. This is not a state of stability. Think of the Amazon rainforest, okay, which has reached a kind of, well, before it started being chopped down, a kind of stability, but it is not stagnant, right? It's not growing, growing, growing outwards, but it's in perpetual motion uh, in many ways. Circular? Okay? Is it going anywhere? Is there a direction? Is there a telios to the rainforest? Well, I, I don't think there is a, a kind of telos except that it's a regenerative system. It's moving around a lot. And in the same way as if you think of that donut economics model, when you're in that light green space above the social foundation and within the uh, ecological ceiling, you know, there can, can well be movement going on. Your economy might be growing, uh, you know, at some point, um, but then it might not be growing in numerical terms and others. So, for example, you might put huge investment into uh, solar energy, for example. Now, that is going to increase your GDP just, you know, but mathematically it's going to do that. But then over the long term, you're not you're not going to be spending money uh, on all of that kind of infrastructure. Yet your economy may be developing in all sorts of interesting and important ways. So I think that is it going anywhere. Is, is there anything that's getting better over time? Well, all sorts of things can be getting over time. Culturally, for example, you know, here I am holding up Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future. You know, there's all sorts of realms where we will be excelling ourselves. But I think what we need to stop doing is thinking that 
the way to advance, that the meaning of progress has to be reduced to uh, material progress. You know, and, and that's why, you know, one could use language of well-being, of cultural development, all sorts of different ways to, you know, you know, I think that in a way that's what people like Bertrand Russell loved that idea that we'd be wor working four hours a day and have the rest of the day free to, you know, do all sorts of things, be artists, scientists, whatever we want. So I certainly don't see this kind of telos as a uh, as a stagnant state, but I definitely do think it's one about, um, in terms of Herman Daly's sort of idea of staying within kind of boundaries. And we, we stay within boundaries all the time. We're used to one boundary in the last couple of hundred years that we don't own slaves, right? And, and we put certain restrictions on ourselves and when we operate within those. So in this t difficult task of trying to imagine the future, I think it would be useful to have some kind of, of measurements or evidences that, that would prove that we had succeeded. Um, so you mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson, or I don't know, maybe there would be more science fiction stories or better science fiction stories. What What is that thing that would be evidence that we could use to to prove that this is working? So, so do, do, do you have things that you could say, well, there's um, less of this or there's more of this, and that in a thousand years after that, there'd be even more? Or is this something that, to Xander's idea that, we don't even actually know and we shouldn't even try and make those criteria and we should let the future generations decide this is this kind of trusting in the future versus dumping the problems on them. Maybe we should equip the future generations to solve the problems rather than we're going to solve the problems or tell you what problems to solve. Or we're just going to try to equip you to solve our problems in the future. Uh, I, you know, so, so do you have a picture of what that would look like in a hundred years if we became good ancestors? Well, I certainly think that there are sensible metrics that we can adopt. I mean, the, you know, global footprint network, you know, has a, a measure of how many planet Earths that are we using each year in terms of our resource, you know, use and carbon footprints. At the moment, it's about 1.6. It's gone down slightly because of COVID-19. And, and so there's this thing, as you know, called Earth Overshoot Day, um, the day beyond which we're using more resources than the planet can naturally regenerate and can naturally absorb. And it's probably something like about August or something this this year. And uh, we need to shift it back to December 31st. Now, that's a very obvious metric. But within that, well, the sky's the limit. Once you've learned to do that, that's how I kind of think about the Mars exploration idea. You know, once we've learned to live within one planet well take as many trips to mars as you like you know fantastic you know there, there's incredible freedoms once we are in that realm so i mean i do think though that that intergenerational solidarity index i mentioned is is useful i think at least on the governmental level to have them something to aim at something you can hold them to account on year on year on long-term policy performance otherwise you know it's quite hard to um actually sort of yeah hold them to account ultimately Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. Um, so we're going to be wrapping up the questions here uh, in just a moment. But um, I did want to ask um, one of the questions from, from online from Rafael Siqueiros. Um, at what point during someone's life should long-term thinking begin to be taught? Like, how do, should, this be, should this be taught to young people in schools? Are, are young, are, how young a mind can really think uh, long-term? And this is something that we work on at Long Now, but I'd, I'd love to get your take on that. 
Yeah, so I've done a lot of research on empathy and the capacity to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. And what's really interesting about empathy is that you can teach it, like riding a bike or driving a car. Um, so there's a project in Canada called Roots of Empathy where they bring a baby into the classroom. The kids sit around the baby and they start talking about the baby. Why is the baby crying or laughing? Why is she suddenly looking over at their mother or father? They're trying to step into the baby's shoes. They use that then as a jumping off point for talking about, well, what's it like to be a uh, bullied kid bullied in the playground or uh, a family living on the streets of Calcutta? So kids learn this capacity to step into the shoes of other. In fact, even by the age of three or four. And in that Roots of Empathy project, they also have an element where they try and get the kids to imagine, well, what's this baby's life going to be like in 10 years, 20 years? What responsibilities might we have towards them? So I absolutely believe that this kind of long-term thinking should be uh, mainstreamed in education. I mean, certainly in elementary school and, and afterwards as well, because kids get this idea of making imaginative journeys. They can do this, right? That is the power of the human mind. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary, um, you know, machine, extraordinary tool. I mean, of course, when human beings reach midlife, um, that's when they tend to start thinking about their legacies for when they're gone. How am I going to keep the fire of my own life still burning? And in psychology, there's this whole field called generativity, um, this idea of generativity, the idea that we need to find, we, we will seek, we, we tend to seek ways to keep ourselves alive when we're, go, when we're gone. We tend to think about it in terms of leaving a legacy for our children, but I believe we need to do something bigger than that. But if we can start early, um, not just thinking, uh, teaching futures thinking, but also about the, the moral aspects of long-term thinking, we will be doing a service to current and future generations. Yeah, indeed. I, I think I've, I'm always struck by how easily um, children empathize with, uh, you know, dinosaurs, for instance, a 60, something 65 million years before they were born. They're, they're fascinated by dinosaurs or space aliens uh, and space in itself is kind of a long term uh, endeavor. And both of those things do seem to capture imaginations of children. So I think that's a it's a great space to play in. Uh, and before we close, I wanted to ask, you know, I know that you're kind of starting in a way your book tour and, and now that you're you're just now launching this book, uh, the, whatever book tours are these days. Uh, but uh, what do you have a new project? Projects that you're working on, uh, new areas of research that you're thinking about? You know, normally I have my next book ready to go when I finished one, but this is proving different, partly in relation to what Stuart was asking about the kind of public response to this book and, you know, other people who are also writing, you know, books about long term thinking and deep time. There is something in the air. And so I've decided to dedicate at least the next five years to trying to roll out the ideas in different ways, whether it's working with government, whether it's trying to invent new art projects like that empathy museum, step into someone else's shoes. I love to crack that one of how to step into the shoes of future generations, how to invent that app, which is the buy, buy later button instead of the buy now button. So <laughs> I'm looking to work with all sorts of organizations to try and um, stretch these ideas out into the future. And then I'll also be doing it in my own family too. During the last UK general election, um, my partner and I decided to give our votes to our 11-year-old twins. And we sat around the kitchen table debated the party manifestos and they told us where to put that X on the ballot sheet. And I hope to be doing that a lot as well. So having conversations at home about long-termism too. 
Nice. Well, if uh, Long Now Foundation can work with you on any of your endeavors over the next five years, uh, uh, please consider us uh, your close ally as always. And we look forward to seeing and hearing more from you in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.